here we are here we are welcome back welcome back this is science in between yes it is it is and that's ollie and that's scott and what are we talking about today uncle scott oh boy (laughs) Little Ollie, nephew <laughs> Ollie, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> Sit down on the on the sharing carpet and let's talk. <laughs> the sharing carpet. Oh gosh. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I was thinking of Abbott Elementary at that point, where, where uh, they where they have a funny thing about sharing carpet. But anyway, yes, I, I'll set this up. Okay. Yeah, because uh, you're this, this you're one, closer to it than I am. Oh, yeah. we're like. You know, right in the middle of it, right? right. So. Yes, I, I've I have passed this Rubicon, and I am on to the rest of the semester. So, what we're going to talk about today is first days of class, and and how really important they are, and how interesting they are, and how um, they are the beginning of when teachers begin to to set the norms that are going to be established in their classroom. And how to think about that, and how we have thought about the, that in the past, both as science teachers and now as academics who are teaching in higher ed, and what what do we see as how do you, how do you begin a class, and how do you feel about it, and what what are those first days like? Um, and I know not everybody is having a first day um, this time of year because if you're in K right. twelve schools, you're in the middle and. But even then, there are some classes that are only a semester long if you're in high school or middle school. And so you may have a first day of class. Um, but there's always a first day of class coming. So if you're a right. teacher, there's always a new one. It's just a question of when it's coming. Yeah, and, So that's and what if, we're going to talk about. Yeah. So if you're not in a first day zone right now, then, you know, tag this and come back to this episode down the road. You know? Right. Or just yeah. or just enjoy the deep thoughts and, and they'll be so deep that they will carry forward into your experience next fall or whenever. Yeah, I think that the, you know, I, I think a lot about like, because we, we do have these cycles, right? In, in yes. both, both in when we we're teaching K to 12 and also in, in college. I mean, we have it like more often in college, like, because yeah. semesters are like usually... 15, 16 weeks long. And so, you know, you're doing, you know, start and then another start and another finish and another start. And then, and so, you know, I think a lot about like those, you know, openings and closings of relationships. And typically for my classes, you know, I may interact with some of my students, you know, a couple times, but for most of the the classes, it's like a one-off experience. Like Mm -hmm. it's, I have them for 15 weeks and then, I may see them again, you know? Yeah. And that's probably similar to you because, I mean, you don't do, like you teach the methods class for your undergrads. And then I teach an assessment class for our undergrads. And then I've done student teaching supervision, but it hasn't been for a while. It has been maybe six years since I've done it. Um, So all those students that I worked with in the assessment class in my undergrads are just, that's it. Then I'll see them at graduation, you know? Right, right. And yeah, so, no, I mean, I, I see, um, usually I see them a little bit during the first methods course because I go in and, and meet them and talk with them a little bit. That's the course before mine. And then they have my class. And then for some of them that are master students, I'll do some supervision for them that their student teaching semester. So, so some of them I see more than others. And obviously some of them I meet with to advise, um, more the master students, though I do meet with the undergrads as well, so I see them a little there. But yeah, it is it's fascinating that um that these folks who I think of, and I'm sure you do too, like I like I think of them as my people, like they're my 
and right. in they're in my program, so to speak. They're in my class. They're like, and I don't even meet them until they're maybe juniors um, in in the university. So I think that that actually is a whole different thing that we could talk about is how how universities are set up and how we could think about community and universities in different ways. But and, and honestly, that it was one it wasn't that different than my experience when I was teaching K to twelve because I would teach sure. Well, I taught physics and yeah. for mostly that was like, I would say 95% of what I taught. I taught some other classes here and there, but I would get those students as juniors or seniors. Right. And so I was, you know, interacting with them usually once. And then there'd be a sometime, like what, like for a semester or a year. And then some students would sign up for AP, which is a second year course, but that'd be like maybe 10 or 12. Yeah. So like, maybe 15 students. And so there were 15 students who I had more than one year in a row. Everybody else, it was just a one semester. And I think this... Well, wait, but but I think one difference between K-12 and higher ed is that, you know, in in K-12, none of my students were physics majors. They were taking physics as part of their program. But the students that I have as juniors and seniors... They're science education majors, at yeah. least from the end of their sophomore year onward, and I don't see them for any of that time. So that's that's what I think is is sort of weird. Like we don't like kids who come in identifying themselves as science education. I don't see them in their first year, and probably not in their second year, and not until the end of their third year. So two and a half years, more than halfway through their program, and they haven't even met the person who is ostensibly in charge of the program. And right. Yeah, it's weird. It's it, well, it's just a, how we structure, you know, secondary education programs, right? Most yeah. of most of the time is spent learning content, and then hey, we should probably teach you how to teach at some point, right. you know. But now, um, but now we spiraled off into a whole different topic, so no, we're going to go back to first day stuff. No, but I think this is important because I think that um, providing that context is critical because you have to understand, like, the students are coming and meeting us in a really critical juncture. That's and they true. have had no relationship with us prior to this. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that, that's a good point. And so for the most part, you know, we have to establish relationships and trusting relationships and try to build trusting relationships with students. And and that that happens really late in a program when these students are like, we're offering classes that are really – and content that is really critical to their futures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that first day matters. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that it always matters, but yes, I think it sure. especially matters in, in your class, in my class. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, and and one of the things that I was talking with a colleague in the hall on Monday, which we both had our first class on Monday, and this is a brand new science education colleague uh, who just arrived uh, and I'm excited to have with with me who's doing secondary science ed. So it's been a little while since I've had a colleague in secondary science ed. Who's this person? Uh, uh, Rishi Krishnamurthy. She, they, sorry, they came from uh, Rutgers most recently as a postdoc and uh, NYU and they're, they're awesome. And I'm excited to have them here with me and as a colleague. Um, and they're going to be teaching 411 this this semester. And so we were talking about that class and, and is that the methods saying, class? Yeah, that's the first methods class. So that's a class right. before mine. So um, they were talking about how nervous they were. And, and I said, you know, I, I'm nervous too. And it's weird, right? It's uh. like, no matter how comfortable you feel, the first day of class is always n- nervous. And, and, you know, 
to harp on our theme, like teaching is relational. It's it's like the beginning of a first date, right? I mean, it's like you don't really know the person. Yeah. It's a blind date. It's a blind, yeah, like, a you blind don't know date the... that has a 15-week commitment to it. So, right. so you're going in and you're like, well, I got to figure out who these people are. They have to figure out who I am. And we have to start developing a relationship with each other because we're going to be together for 15 weeks. But but I also, as the teacher, have a lot of power <clears throat> in terms of setting the tone and creating yeah. the environment that's going to happen there. And uh, and so I think that's it's incredibly important what a first day does. Yeah, and I think that for you know for our classes and well, well for anybody's classes, it's critical yeah. to like really explicitly address you know um the norms in the classroom yeah. you know how people are going to talk with one another how they're going to address you as the teacher as us as the the educators you know and how they're going to interact with each other i mean it's i remember like my first first day mm. i was teaching middle school math Right. This is like 1992. And I went into this middle school class and I just was like, sat down, you know, sat down in front of them. Yeah. Right. And I don't really have a whole lot of rules, you know. Uh, and did you pull out a cigar and like, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. You it kids. was, it was mass chaos in like two days. <laughs> and then we had another conversation yeah. and then I was like, reeling it all back in i've changed my mind we have lots of rules we have lots of rules we need to talk about this but i would say like when i first started teaching um when i got uh the the faculty position this is maybe 15 16 years ago i started with another person we came in together but he had been a a professor someplace else he was had been teaching another university before coming and i just remember knocking on his door and saying okay um hey i'm thinking that i'm just gonna go by ollie is that okay? <laughs> like, do you have a problem with that? And he's like, I just go by my first name. Yeah. Now I know that's not the, the, that's not customary with a lot of our colleagues, right. but it's customary between you and I. Yeah. And, and so I make a point of explaining to the students that like, I want to foster relationships with them. I want to, for them to see not there being this power differential between, I mean, there is, sure. there is a power differential. You can't I mean, erase I, it by saying it's not there. Right. I mean, there's, I'm actively recognizing that there is a power differential between us. However, you know, putting those titles like doctor and, you know, mm -hmm. that I think that creates it more explicitly. And I think yeah. those are barriers. And I'm trying to break those down because I want to, I want them to trust me. I want them mm -hmm. to trust me and the feedback I give them that it's, I'm on their side. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I can do, you can do that a bunch of ways. You could be like, Hey, I have all of this. Look at all my publication history and look at all of like, mm -hmm. I'm a, you know, you know, a celebrated educator, you know, right. like you could lay out your resume mm -hmm. to them, but I'd rather do it by fostering relationships with them and trying to get them to see that, okay, mm -hmm. this guy is not full of crap, you know, that he, he, right. I'm like, well, kind of, maybe. <laughs> But I think what's what's important about that, and and this is before we talk, started the show, I talked I talked a little bit about this. Um, I blogged about this a bunch of years ago after listening to a revisionist history podcast, where he talked. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talked about something called the power distance, and the power distance is really the distance between, like you know, the it's a social hierarchy thing, like 
the distance between the you know the lowest person in the hierarchy and the highest person in the hierarchy in different cultures have different power distances like mm-hmm. so in some cultures it's like you know it's really like it's it, it's very customary that the you know somebody who's you know sweeping the floor would have you know ca- casual conversations with the person who's like the boss you mm-hmm. know um that's not typical in america right there's and, and that power distance is little but it's also a lot of ways how students navigate our classes as they move mm-hmm. from one professor to another professor to another professor it's almost like they're traveling around the world right they're mm-hmm. going okay here i'm in you know this country now i'm in this country and each country has its own norms and practices its own ways of knowing its own ways of being its own ways of interacting its own power distances and i think that the more that we can as instructors spend time to cultivate understandings about that, about how this is going to happen in our classrooms, the better, because mm-hmm. it can reduce some chaos down the road, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, in higher ed, I think, well, it's different um, in many respects. And I think there's probably more diversity in higher ed than there is in K-12. Yeah. K-12, you know, when with with younger kids, I mean, they always call... I think, you know, in elementary, it's it's pretty traditional to call your teacher Mrs. or Mr. or whatever. Um, and and I think that carries forward for the most part into high school. And a lot of times that right. that's set at the principal or higher administration level where they're like, this is what we do here. But um, but in higher ed, I think there's much more diversity. I think there's professors that are like you and I who sort of say, yeah, call me Scott. There's some who like insist that they be called doctor or whatever um, because they that's their that's their thing. They feel like I earned this and I, I deserve the right to be called doctor. Um, and certainly class sizes impacts that as well. If you're in a, sure. if you're in a class of 700, uh, um, then the power differential is automatically set pretty big um, because you're one of 700 and you're just sitting in a room watching somebody talk. Um, And, you know, I mean, your, your point about like laying out your CV, I think that's a nice idea. I'm now going to print out a copy of my CV and hand it out (laughs) on the first day of class. Like just so that you're impressed with me, I want to hand this out to you. And, uh, but but, but there are people who do stuff that's like, I wouldn't say maybe not that hardcore, but there are people who are like, who come in and it's like I here I am an established scholar in this right. field. They're going to establish your bona fides right from the right. beginning. Well, and I always felt like there there are different ways of building trust and respect with people. Right, that is one way. You know, it's the you know I guess show me you show me different ways. Right, you can right. either sh- show it by like hey here's this or by by through actions. Right. Yeah, yeah and, and I think. Um, yes. And I think the actions are incredibly important. And, and one of the things that I've thought about since I was a, a high school teacher and I've continued into my higher ed practice is, you know, usually the first day of classes traditionally is all about explicitly laying out like here are the norms, here are the rules, like t- students here talk about it as like syllabus week, right? Where it's right. like the first day of class is like, okay, we're going to go through the syllabus. Here's the assignment for next week. Here's all the assignments. Here's how their grades work. Here's where you turn in all the stuff here. So you spend like the whole class going through all the details of the syllabus. And one of the things I've done 
again, since I was a beginning teacher is, is not done that and always had my first class immediately start with something that is what I want to be the core of what we're going to do. So in science class, I was always starting with something that was the phenomenon that was going to be the thing that we investigate. Right. right? So we don't, we don't do anything else. We first start with, here's the thing. I want you to get in groups and start talking with each other about how that thing is happening. I want you to start developing an explanation because I want them to know that that's what this class is about. This class is not about the syllabus. This class is not about the assignments that you're being given. This class is about figuring stuff out. And so from the, from the jump, here's the deal. We're going to, we're going to get in groups. You're going to talk with each other. Here's the thing that you're going to talk about. And I'm going to come around and talk to you as we go. And, um, and then we can, you know, I mean, the next layer up for me, I want to get your thoughts on that first, but the next layer up for me is, or related to that is the, the sort of learning of names, which I think for me is such a critical part and how you think about, you know, creating a classroom culture, simple things that you can do. So, so right. starting with the phenomenon is a simple thing. It doesn't, doesn't require um, a lot of pre-planning. You can talk about the syllabus on day two or day three or whatever, but day one, you want to tell them what this class is about. But I think that not just telling them what it's about, but having it be an authentic representation of what the class is going to be like. Yeah, that's like what I meant. By right. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Right. I know. Like, oh, okay. You, you, like your your because like there's so many times when you, you walk in that first day of class and you get a sense of, oh, this class is going to be awesome. And then two weeks later, you realize, oh, this class is horrible. This is nothing like the first day of class. Yeah. Right. Or so, yeah. somebody. Yeah. Somebody comes in and presents like a a false sense of who they are yeah. right and then down the road you realize okay that was just for show that was just right. like a so i think the more that we as as teachers can pre- present ourselves authentically mm-hmm. and have that first class be as much of an authentic representation of what the activity is going to look like throughout the semester the yeah. better because it's it's laying the the groundwork for us to build on from that point on, yeah. and so I I I didn't used to hand out the syllabus on the first day, but I found that some students were like it stressed them out. They yeah. were like, so when do we get the syllabus? Oh, yeah. you get it next class. And for some, you know, some students, I have some really Type A students who yeah. are like that's that was a stress that I just was like, okay, I'm going to take that, you know, I, so I do hand out a, a syllabus on the, on the first day I now, but I didn't used to, but, yeah. um, you know, I, well, you know, I don't know if I, I, uh, I don't know if I shared the story. Um, but I always have them do something before they come to the first class, usually a reading mm-hmm. or something where yeah. I'll just say, Hey, I'll send out a video. Usually by the, my, our classes start, for us next week. So um, by the time this episode drops, our first ep- our first uh, my first class will have started. By the time the first ta- classes are started, my students have gotten emails from me, links sure. to videos, usually you know some sort of file. I so I want them. I'm like so they know the first day of class. It's 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 not a blow off class. It's mm-hmm. a class we're doing stuff. And mm-hmm. so I'll I go hey I'll record a short video and say hey. Welcome to the class. I'm Ollie. This I'm really excited to get to work with you. Um, here's the stuff that you need to know for the first day of class. Here's what I'd like you to do for the first day of class. I want you to have read this. Usually it's like a chapter or it's an article or something. Come prepared to discuss this. 
you know, and I give them a couple prompts. Mm -hmm. Um, That got me into trouble last fall. No. So what had happened, I know, (laughs) I know, this is what happened. Well, I didn't get in trouble, trouble. I mean, I didn't really like, I think, you know, but I was called into my dean's office. So I have a new, I have a new dean, I have a new, and I have a new provost. And for those of you who don't work in higher ed, you know, a dean's kind of like a principal. Mm-hmm. You know, like a building principal. Usually, the the dean oversees a you know an an area of the university. So this our my dean oversees the the College of Education and Human Services. She's brand new. Um, she came in. I think she started in July, so mm-hmm. just like maybe six months ago. My provost is maybe a year, you know, more experienced than her at our university. So she, the provost, is kind of like kind of like the superintendent. You know, mm-hmm. I would say the provost is pretty high up. I mean, the the part that falls apart is like with a university, we have presidents, but presidents are usually they're kind of like more cheerleaders, they're fundraisers. Ooh. They're uh, I know, but I mean that's I mean the provost is really the pe- people who do the all heavy lifting, right? Yeah. I mean, and the and the president on the are, academic side for sure. On yeah. the academic side, right? On the academic side, the provost is the person who does all the heavy lifting in terms of you know fit. And then if you have assistant associate provost, those are the people who kind of like are the building level folks, right? Yeah. Um, I think this context is important because. One of the students in my first day of class, before the first day of class, emailed the provost. Oh, so went, went to the superintendent, right? Emailed the superintendent that and said, crazy. It is crazy that it was unfair that I had, I was asking for assignments before prior. the first, prior to the first day of class. Then that email got forwarded to the dean, to the dean. said, Handle this. And so the dean calls me in and says, hey, we got to talk about this. And I said, well, what do you want to talk about? Because yeah. I'm happy to explain my rationale. I'm happy mm-hmm. to talk about you know, my, my, my reasoning for this. I want them to – I want to establish norms of practice right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, this is you know, a, a, a really low-stakes assignment, but I want to come into the class. You know, this is a class that met just a handful of times over the course of a semester. I said, we hit the – road running we and mm-hmm. i want them to they're going to come in and critically analyze this reading we're going to discuss it we're going to they're bringing in small groups like it's not a blow off class mm-hmm. and and this is a senior level class this is seniors yeah. right and so i was able to like ex- explain it i didn't really get in trouble the challenge was i never really got to talk to this whoever the student was because i didn't know who the student was you know yeah. so i never i had, i had some suspicions you know but yeah, well, I hope the provost said to that student, like, this is totally inappropriate. Like, if you've got a beef, A, you start with the faculty right. member and then you work your way up the food chain. You do not start with the provost. Um, as you say, that's like going to the superintendent when you've got a problem with somebody's, you know, classroom management. That's bananas. It, it's like, it's like, you going to a restaurant and asking to speak to the manager because you didn't have ice in your water. You know, it's like, I want to speak to, (laughs) it's it's like asking to speak to the owner of the chain. Right. For the rest. Like I want to speak to like the CEO of the company that runs this restaurant because I don't have ice in my water. Right. Yeah. It's bananas. It is bananas. Um, My only, the real part where I was, you know, 
struggling. I mean, it was it was more laughable than I mean, I won't say that created some stress for me for a few hours, but it, I uh, I mean, the real part I was mourning was the fact that I w- didn't have the opportunity to have that same conversation with the student. Yeah, you and know? that's why that's why it should have been the chain of command is and the provost should reinforce that. I mean, I think that's fair, too. Like if you're a leader out there and and this sort of thing happens, like your first response should be, this is inappropriate. You do not contact right. me directly. You go to the professor. If If the professor can't work with you on this, then you can go to the department head and then you can go to the dean. And then like there's, uh, there's a process here. And the reason there's a process there isn't to create that power distance, though probably to some degree it is, but because it's about relationships. It goes back to right. that, right? It's like your relationship is with the professor. And when you yeah. go to the provost, what it's like it's like you and your friend have a beef and you go to your friend's parents or your friend's grandparents and say, hey, your kid's being a jerk. It's like, well, first you start with a kid, right? right. I mean, it's, it's... Well, I think the hard part for me, besides not having the conversation with a student, was really trying to bracket the emotions that came with that. Yeah. And so that I would go into the classroom because this is relational work and this kind of undermines some of that relationship building right from the start. Yeah. You know, and it was like, okay, hold on. You know, I can't, I can't let this color my perceptions of this, the whole class of there was like 35 students in there, you know, because I knew what class it was coming from, you know? And so I was like, I, I can't let it like really. So I, I was not making any sarc. I didn't even address it in the classroom. I yeah. didn't talk about it. I didn't address it. I didn't make sarcastic remarks. Hey, like somebody emailed the provost. I was yeah. just like, I'm going to forget that this even happened because yeah. I don't want it to fester in the classroom or cause any sorts of relationship, you know, negative relationship, you know, mm-hmm. interactions. Yeah. But it was like, it was something I had to like mindfully do. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it is, it is, uh, you know, it is about relationships. And when people violate, that's a violation of the trust in the same way that lots of other things are violations of the trust. And I think they're, they're, um, Part of the disadvantage of the reduction in that power distance that's happened, I think, just societally over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years is that people do do that as younger people are much more willing to jump the chain. um, I think then then like when I was in college, I'm not even sure I knew who that the provost was a thing, but I certainly would not have reached out to the provost if I had a beef with one of my professors. Um, So, yeah, that's. That's fascinating. Yeah, like I was like, how would a student like even know who a provost is? Yeah, I mean, they must have. I mean, my cynical point of view is that they had a conversation with their parents, like they were talking to their parents and saying, sure. "Oh my god, can you believe the professor made me do this?" And you're the the parent, because this is the way parents sometimes think is like, "Oh, you know who you need to tell? You need to tell the provost about that." It's like, what? But do you think most parents would know who the provost is? Well, it depends on who they yeah. are. Like yeah. if they're if they're academics. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Sure. But you would think that what? if they worked in schools, they would say, have you talked to the professor? That would be the first question. Well, I don't know. I know lots of professors that would, would escalate quickly, too. Like, oh, there, yeah. there are professors in my college who, if they've got a beef, they don't go and talk to the person they have the beef with or the department head or often the dean, but they go all the way up the food chain. And so yeah. I think some people just, um, you know, it's it's like it's like. 
going to Twitter and and announcing your beef publicly with somebody on Twitter. It's like, well, you've just escalated to nuclear right. level uh, engagement here over a problem that let's let's uh, be clear is not nuclear level responsibility. No. So um, he made me read. 12 pages before the first half class before before coming to class it's almost like this is an environment where i'm supposed to be learning stuff that's stupid i do not like it um so if you're listening student of ollie's who complained to the provost bad on you shame i'm sorry i took us down a rabbit hole i apologize but i think that so wait no don't don't butt me because i'm i gotta get i want to get back to something now okay i want to get back to uh a one pragmatic thing, right, which I think is related to this um, because it's all relational, is this idea of like, how do you establish um, in the beginning that that this is a relational classroom? Like this is a place where you care about the students. And as simple as this sounds like that, that and I mentioned this as a thing that I wanted to talk about, but this this idea of knowing your students' names. Absolutely. So there's lots of avenues into that in higher ed. Like I can, I can go into Canvas, our learning management system, and I can print out uh, it's a print view out of Canvas that shows me the pictures of all my students with their names under it. So I can have that in advance. So I have a pre-existing organizer to learn their names from. Um, when I was a high school teacher, I always had a seating chart. I'd have the kids sit and I'd have a seating chart at the front. And And what you can do then is if you're looking at a kid and you don't remember their name, I could walk behind my desk and just glance at the seating chart. I'd know the kid's name, walk around, and then I call on him and the point is what you want to try and establish is that you know who these kids are and you know their names and and because that expresses a level of care right it, right i care who you are i want to know who you are um and that begins with you know the dale carnegie thing right which is that knowing people's names makes a difference right it it makes them understand that you respect and care about them as human beings, as opposed to you just being some student in their class. Um, so as trivial as that sounds, the more from the first day you're, you're from the jump using people's names and trying to connect with them, you know, like they, they come into the classroom early. Like I came into my class, my class started at two thirty. I came in at two ten into my room. There are already two students in the room. Right. So I'm like, okay, well, some professors would just go put their laptop down, start preparing for class, but that's a serendipitous opportunity to start having a conversation. Hey, how you doing? Here's uh, my name's Scott. What's your name? What'd you do over the holidays? Do you have any you know good stuff happen? Whatever, right? You start having a conversation as if these people are normal human beings, not like your minions. Yes, I I am absolutely on the same page, and that should be no surprise. Um, I am a big name user. Even in my online classes, I start every like post or response to somebody with their first name. Mm-hmm. When I give feedback in like my learning management system, I'll put their first name in there. Mm-hmm. Like I always, and I'm, I find that as I'm getting older, I'm having trouble remembering students' names. So I, yep. you know, I have them do name tense. So I have them out on, I ask them, okay, hey, could you, especially with my larger class, I like that I had a class, like this class was, that was t- telling you about, there were 35 students in there and 35 mm-hmm. students crammed in a classroom that probably should have fit 24. Mm-hmm. And so they were like on top of each other. And so it was really hard, especially when you have like seven Lindsay's, you know, it's like, ah, oh, you yeah. know, which, Lin- yeah, which seven Lindsay are you? Lindsay's. Yeah. Not really, but there was, there yeah. was, you know, yeah, yeah. and so it, it's, it, I, I find that, it's it's hard, but it's still something that I 
I work to do. And I've been figuring out ways of like scaffolding that or supporting that in a way that I could still, okay, everyone have a name town. I get your name 10 out. You can, I, I go around and the power of showing up early and staying late. That's absolutely critical. Yeah. That's so yeah. important. The, I was listening to an Adam Grant podcast this morning and um, they were interviewing a CEO or, or somebody who works for Morgan Stanley. I forget the person's name. And she kept saying the power of small actions, the power of small actions Mm -hmm. and like how like just having a casual conversation with somebody who has to get on an elevator or coming and saying, hey, I'm running going to get a cup of coffee. Can I get you one? Those are things that lay the groundwork for building relationships so that somebody says like when when it comes up in a conversation, it comes up in a meeting or someone that says, hey, does somebody know Ollie? You've just given them a data point. Right, yeah. that they could say, "Hey, you know, you know, I've had some interactions with them." That's the same way that we should be viewing our classrooms. It's like the power of small actions. So you come into a classroom, you're like, "Hey, how, you know, I know you were out in the field last week. How'd it go? Like, how did mm-hmm. how are, like?" And spending time to do that, to foster those interactions, foster those relationships, those are big. They pay dividends down the road. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, uh, we talk about it so much, but it is, you know, it isn't rocket science. This is <clears throat> this is about respecting other people and about relationships. Right. And if you treat it that way, if you if you go into your classroom, whether you're in K-12 or whether you're in higher ed and you, you look around and say, <clears throat> these are other people, they're like me and not like me, but. They, but I have an opportunity to to connect with them as human beings, and that's what I'm here for. And again, like when you start with the syllabus, and and again, most professors, especially I think, start with the syllabus. What when you start with the syllabus and the rules, you do two things: you you create that power distance instantly because you're saying, "Look, I'm in control here. Right. This is what we are doing. We are doing this, and you're going to sit and listen to me." So that's the first thing. And 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 the second thing it does is it says this class is about you learning content. This is not about us having a relationship. This is not about you being my student and us staying in touch after you leave here. And oh, it's so nice to hear from you. None of that. What what you're here for is you're here to learn this. And here's the stuff that we're going to learn this semester. And here's how the ways here are the ways you're going to prove that you've learned it to me so that I can give you a grade. And that's what this class is about. This class is about transmission of content from me to you. And me deciding how much of that content you have appropriately received and therefore earned, quote unquote, earned a grade in this class based on that. So I do think like your point, I think, is really well taken, this idea that small actions communicate tremendous um, later outcomes. I mean, it goes back to other things we've talked about in terms of norms, right? That norms in a classroom are constructed out of small individual actions. That doesn't mean any one action constructs them. What it means is that the pattern of those actions does construct them. And so things like how you treat kids on the first day actually is your biggest opportunity to set the bar to say, this is where I think we as, as teachers and students are going to interact is this way. And so when you start with the syllabus and the rules and the, the content of the course, you make it really clear what the course is about and you set the bar. And then even if later on you try and do things differently, you're now having to overcome this this millstone that you've hung around your neck on the first day. Millstone. Look at you. Nice. Millstone around the neck. Nice. I would say the other thing, other piece of advice besides like learning their names early or trying to and using their names as much as possible is if you show up early and pay attention. Yeah. Like pay attention to 
what they're wearing, what they're, you know, some, sometimes students come in with like, you know, water bottle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those, that's all data. Mm-hmm. All of it's data. I look at it all as data and I go, okay, how can, and it, it sounds contrived, but it, or like sinister, mm-hmm. but it's like, how can or I draw or, or yeah. creepy, yeah. but, but it's not intended to be that way. No. It's intended. All of that is data for me to draw on to get to know those students. So if somebody mm-hmm. comes in with like a, a shirt that has a band on it that I know mm-hmm. or a band that I've seen or a band that I've heard from my kids or whatever, or somebody has a sticker on their phone or whatever, or, you know, they're, they're wearing a, a football hat, like, oh, they're a, a Baltimore Ravens fan or something. That's all data. That's all data for me to say, hey, you're a Ravens fan? I'm a Steelers fan, man. We, we go every year. We battle it out, you know? Yeah. And now they've just had a little piece of information, and I've just had a little piece of information. And here's the thing. Like, this is, like, it sounds creepy. It does. But there's some research that shows that as you build those connections, the students see the classes as more beneficial. Sure. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I mean, there's, there's, um, I have a, a, a friend colleague, Oren Murray, who's, um, who's done a lot of work with this. He was at the university of Chicago doing some, some work with where they were building surveys to use in big urban districts to identify characteristics of classrooms that support student learning. And they looked from the teacher point of view, the administrator point of view, the student point of view, the parent point of view, they had all these different data slices into that. And the fundamental truth of all of that data could be boiled down to the quality of the relationship between the student and the teacher matters tremendously in terms of the performance of the kid in that class, which for you and I is like, duh, but lots of people, I'm not sure they understand that that way to understand that. Like if kids feel safe and comfortable and, and, and supported and they, they feel like the teacher likes and respects them, they're going to do better in class. And so that all this stuff about, you know, it, it seems However you want to say it, creepy or or pragmatic or whatever, but or you know, um, like over intentional. I think I think it is on some level over intentional, but that doesn't mean that the relationships that you establish are artificial because you're actively trying. And to your point, another thing that is important about that relationship is that you're sharing about yourself, so they get to know you as a person that's not just like, oh yeah, uh, Scott is my professor. I don't know anything about him. It's like, oh yeah, I want them to know things about me because it makes me human to them and it makes me feel like they're there or makes them feel like they can actually have a relationship with me, that they can feel like, oh, Scott's a person I know. He's not just a professor that I had, right? So um, so that that stuff you were mentioning about the Ravens and the Steelers right. or whatever it is. Bands, like that stuff, uh, right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't there matter. There were a couple a couple students I I met in the fall that were like really into Marvel stuff, right? And, yeah, sure, of course. And I was like, you you and it, they were they had read comic books and mm-hmm. and and it was like they were like they were my people. And so yeah. every day I'd go in, I'd talk to these two students, I'd be like, Hey, did you see Black Panther? Did you see yeah. and it was, you know. Yeah. I mean, again, it, it feels um, contrived, but the truth of it is that that first days and every days in in schools are fundamentally about those relationships. And and this is how you do it. So 
remembering that the first day is is your first chance to establish those norms and end that relationship. I think that's the sort of takeaway to say, yeah, these these things are critically important. If you want to um if you want to have a classroom that's built on relationships and relational activity, um, you have to establish those as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is to find out who your students are, know their names, let them know a little bit about you and start communicating with them about stuff that is not the core content of the class. Because if they think that's all you care about, then that's all they're going to care about. And it's going to make your relationship very sad and thin. So the article that I was re- referencing is a 2006, uh, 2016, excuse me, study that was presented in uh, the uh, Journal of Educational Psychology. Is that where it comes from? And it's called Creating Birds of Similar Feathers. And mm-hmm. it looked at specifically uh, student-teacher relationships in K-12 environments, ninth grade students. And what they did was they did they handed out get to know you surveys, mm. and that they they, uh, they manipulated some of those surveys to make it seem like so, the students had or they shared some of that information. I don't think they manipulated data. I think what they did was uh, showed the relationships to some teachers, like, hey, you know, you this students like has the same interests as you right. do, you know, mm. and and that helped to foster relationships, which ultimately helped to pr- uh, promote more better. Yeah. Um, performance in the class. Yeah, I can link to that. So there you go. Thank there you. you go. Yeah. And something. now, uh, now I think you should tell me something that brings you joy, Holly. Oh, are we there? I think we are. <laughs> sure. So I, um, you know, I, I was, I, I've been reading a lot leisurely. That's one of my New Year's resolutions. I'm trying to read a little bit more. Um, and so I've been on a tear just reading, and and I, uh. I'm on the middle of some a couple series, but the books weren't available, so I was just like, okay. And on, uh, I've been I've been using the Hoopla, the Hoopla app for our library, mm-hmm. just going through and seeing what was available. And there was one that says librarians recommend, and I was like, oh, what do librarians recommend? And so there was a a book called The Chalk Man, and I didn't know anything about, it, but it said suspense thriller. And and I was like, okay. And so I'm like, well, oh, and I'm, you like the Gray Man, so I do. And I was like, the Chalk Man. Not anything like that. What I will say it's kind of like is I'm like halfway through, so I don't know where the book is going, but it is kind of like if you liked Woman on a Train, if you like Woman in the Window, um, the Chalkman is similar mm-hmm. to that in that you have an unreliable narrator. Oh, unreli- or you think the old he's- unreliable narrator thing. Right. Well, or you think they're unreliable. You don't know, right? At least right. I, that's where I am right now. I don't know. Right. You like, don't know if they are or not. But you have some suspicions. There's lots of like, you know, breadcrumbs have been let out, let, laid out. So you're halfway through the book and you know that some bad stuff goes down. You know that, and some some of it's in the past and some of it's now. And it's like, and it's a little bit like I would say it's a cross between a, the woman on a train, because there's you know the guy has some alcoholism issues, but it's also like a stand by me kind of thing because there's like this you know there's there's a um, a murder when these kids are like kids you know, mm-hmm. and uh and so you're jumping back and forth in time the kids are the, the guy's an adult then he's going back to when he was twelve or thirteen. And it's just really interesting storytelling. It's really suspenseful. I have no idea where it's going, but the narrator is absolutely unreliable. Nice. You know? Or at least I think he is. Who knows? Maybe he's, Who knows? Maybe, maybe he's not a crazy alcoholic. Maybe he's, <laughs> maybe, 
<laughs> which is what the other two books, right? I mean, not to, oh, I, I don't mean to like give away the plots of women in the window and the yeah, right. train. However, <laughs> however, the narrator may be unreliable in both of those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nice. All right. So the theme of the week is unreliable narrators. Yes. Wait, uh, that's not us though. Ali and I are very reliable. We're very reliable. As narrators go. Yes. Okay, cool. Well, I will add the chalk man to my list. Uh, yeah, my man, my book pile is is sad I, and I broken, and so many things. It just keeps in getting it, higher. Yeah, 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 taller and taller. Hard hard to figure out what book to pull out next. But um, okay, so so the thing that's been bringing me joy is a is a little rabbit hole that I've been going down probably for the last month, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, yeah, it's more than that, really. Um, but I've been going down the rabbit hole of this conceptual artist and installation maker named Tom Sachs. So he's, a he's a New York based, um, you know, artist, um, still alive, like basically my age. Um, and, and he, I mean, I'm not going to try to describe his work exactly. Uh, you can go, you can go, we'll put his name in the show notes and, um, but there there are a couple of things I like about it. One is that he's he's very DIY, so he builds his own stuff and he has his his team build stuff. Um and they build, you know, like it, it, some of it sounds a little crazy when I describe it, but like for example, they build everything sort of out of plywood and and very basic materials and found materials. Um but they recreate things that have to do with largely with consumer culture and, um, and sort of our, our critiques of that. So like he built out of plywood and foam core and glue. He basically, not basically, he built a, um, a mock-up or, or, or sorry, a working version of a sub-zero refrigerator and freezer, like, which sounds, again, it sounds sort of crazy. He built this, that one of his biggest installations that he's famous for was called Nutsies, and it he built a miniature version of a, a, and fully functional McDonald's restaurant that was part of an installation that included a, a reproduction of a to one to twenty five scale Le, Co, Le Corbusier Le Corbusier I'm not pronouncing that right the French um, architects building the Unité which is one of his famous buildings in Marseille um, and you know. It's, it's, and then he also sort of has um, a peek into his working as part of this. So he has a repair station that's part of this installation that has these sort of booths that he builds. And you can imagine it like all this, like if you had a grandfather who had a pegboard and hung everything on that pegboard and outlined it in, in Sharpie, um, which for me, I remember that being a thing when I was a kid that there were a lot of people who had garages where all the tools were hung on the wall and outlined in Sharpie. It's that kind of vibe to it. Um, it's, uh, but I've found it really fascinating and interesting stuff. One little piece of trivia about it is, um, the term knolling. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's been a lot on like Instagram and, and, uh, visual platforms where people like knoll their desks, where they align everything perfectly in right angles to their desk surface and then take a picture of it to sort of show how, I don't know, I guess it's to show how organized they are. But Tom Sachs was one of the originators of that term. And it came from Knoll, the company that made furniture, which was 
where Le Corbusier made um, some of his his famous furniture, which you probably are familiar with um, when you see it. But anyway, that was a whole lot of stuff. But Tom Sachs, uh, if you don't know who he is, check it out. He's he's a fascinating guy. Um, and, and he's, he's spawned like people who worked in his, in his team have gone on to do other things. And I actually found him through, through one of his sort of progeny, but, um, but yeah, interesting stuff. And he, he puts out books of his, um, of his exhibits so that you can look at them and understand him and understand what he does. But so so that's the thing. S Sachs S A C H S. Correct. Correct. Tom Sachs. He's on Instagram and he's on Twitter and he, he seems like he'd like be like our people, right? I think he would be our people. Yeah. I mean, he's got a, he's got a book. Um, it's not even a book. It's really like a, a, I guess a pamphlet called 10 bullets that are the 10 rules of his, of his studio. Um, that I think are fascinating too. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's, he's sort of, a a bit of a cult of personality. He runs this, this studio and they're, you know, a group of employees, I think probably between five and 10 people who work there. I don't, I don't know the status of that studio these days. Um, but, um, cause a lot of the work that I'm looking at was older, but I think he's, he's an active artist and, uh, yeah, interesting stuff. So there you go. I- I am going to say that I'm certain that my 16-year-old son knows who this guy is. Really? Because he's also spent time working on shoes and Nike. Like, yeah, yeah. He's got his and, own shoe. Right. And I bet you. Nike, yeah. Yes. And it's. It, I'm sure if I text my son and go, hey, you know who Tom Sachs is? He'd be like, he created the shoe. Because my, yeah. my son's into that space right now. For some, okay. he's in the shoe world. You know? Yeah, well, there are a lot of people who are in the shoe shoe world now, and yeah, he does have his own shoe, uh, and uh, so you can buy Tom Sachs shoes. They're for what they are, I think, ridiculously expensive. But I, I imagine that's sort of the point, um, since part of his work is about the critique of consumerism and what that means. Sure. I think the meals at the McDonald's that he that were part of his exhibit, I think it was a thousand dollars for for a burger and fries and a and a soda, so. Wow. That, yeah. that was for the listeners at home. I, I did the shocked face, shocked face emoji. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I think that's part of his work too is, but sure. anyway, I don't know if people are into that kind of art. It's, it's certainly unusual, but as you say, I think these are kind of my people. So I've been down a rabbit hole there deciding whether I need to buy a, an angle grinder, um, which I don't need an no. angle grinder, but no. you know, I'm like shopping for them. I, yeah, I, I probably yeah. do need one of these. I mean, if Tom Sachs has one, then I should probably have one. Right. Right. Better living through Tom Sachs. No, that is not a thing I'm going to do, but I am going to admire his art. Sure. I might follow him on Instagram. Yeah, I'm always, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. Live it up. Well, so first days. First days. Was, yeah. First days. And joys. There you go. And, and first days and joys, which sometimes they go together. And sometimes they don't, especially sometimes, if you're in trouble with right. the provost. And, right. You know, sometimes it's peanut butter and jelly. Sometimes it's peanut butter and anchovies, but oh, you never know. Wow. There yeah. you go. All right. Well, on that note, the peanut butter and the anchovy sandwich. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.